Of the box. Meet people through their music. With Heidi Pat on FBI 94.5. How are you going? Big thank you to Stephen Ferris. He's been looking after you for the last couple of hours. You can head to fbiradio.com, go to programs and playlists if you're after any of the songs that he played. My name is Heidi Pett. It's time for Out of the Box, and this week I've got Benjamin Law in the studio. Now, he is a very, very accomplished writer. In his short career, Ben's published two books, Geisha and The Family Law, and he's written what seems like a million articles for Frankie, <laughs> Good Weekend and The Monthly. Ben, welcome to FBI. Hey, Heidi. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Sydney. You're fairly new. I'm pretty new. So about six months ago, I moved here from Brisbane. And I think a lot of people just sort of look at me in a strange way after I say that, like, why were you in Brisbane? Why were you not in Melbourne or Sydney this whole time? But I have a lot, I have a lot of civic pride for Brisbane, but now I'm one of you guys. I'm slowly becoming one of you guys. Reluctantly? Uh, no, not not reluctantly. I mean, Sydney's such a beautiful, show-offy, grand city. I'm still getting over the fact that it's, it's, just... it's this densely urban area in one one place and then it becomes a beach in the next. It's, it's quite remarkable. It seems a nice way of saying that we're brash. You're brash. <laughs> You're brash. It's all glitter and boobs and tan. It's I, I love it. You've been spending too much time in Bondi, I think. Bondi, Clavelli, that Gordon's Bay. Is that the hipster beach? That's, yeah. yeah, that's the hipster beach. <laughs> I know my places already. Got it sorted. Now, what have you brought into play for us today? Oh, it's it's a little bit exposing doing this, I think, because I, you know, whenever I walk into someone's house, I always look at their bookshelf discreetly just to see what sort of person they are. But I have brought in a lot of music that will probably tell people a lot about my age. I'm in my early 30s. I'm 31. And I think after people hear what I'm playing, they'll realize I'm very much, you know, a child of the 90s and early 2000s. But to start off with, I thought we'd play what I considered in the mid-90s to be my holy trinity. There was an issue of Q magazine in 1994 that was released, and it was it had the caption, Tits, Hips, Lips, Power. And it was three women. It was Tori Amos, PJ Harvey, and Björk. And in the mid-90s, I more or less listened to no one else except these three women. And the first song would be Tori Amos's Quarter Light Sneeze. Let's have a listen. You're on Out of the Box on FBI Radio.
You're listening to FBI, and that was PJ Harvey with Good Fortune. And that's Benjamin Law. He's my guest on Out of the Box today. He's going to be programming all the tunes for the next hour or so. Now, Benjamin is best known as a writer, and you may have found his words in Frankie. You may have found them in The Good Weekend or The Monthly, or you might have found them in one of two books that he has written. The first one was The Family Law, and it seems like you just made this decision to take all the articles that you have written about your personal <laughs> life and family and just be like, you know what? Screw it. I'm writing a book. Basically, let's just stitch them up all together. It was funny because for Frankie magazine, one of the magazines, that I've been writing for since the second issue. I mean, they often ask you to write about yourself, but you can't write about yourself without writing about other people. You know, none of us are hermits that live in caves. And my family's a really big, sprawling family, and they have affected my life in so many ways. They've shaped it, they've moulded it. And my mum, it was when I started writing about her in Frankie magazine that I realised, actually, she is a very unique character and a lot of people responded to her. I remembered one of the first articles I was asked to write was um, the worst or strangest advice that your mother has given you over the years. And my mother used to scream at um, my sisters in Cantonese, um, which means in English when it's translated, it means you need to have a shower now, otherwise your vagina will breed worms. And when I wrote that, everyone was so appalled and thought it was hilarious. And then eventually they sort of spun off into longer pieces and that, that sort of became a book. That seems to be your style, though, is appalling <laughs> but hilarious. Like, if I was going to sum it up. I think my friends would probably agree with you that they find me funny but horrific. And I think even now my editors, I'm, I'm about to start writing um, a column for, for Fairfax, and my editors will pre-warn me, look, Ben, I think you're funny, but I don't, I don't necessarily find poo and vomit as fascinating as you. But I think when you grow up in a big family and all that stuff is so in front of your face, you have to laugh about it or make jokes about it. Otherwise, it would be too intense. <laughs> And how do you, because I know you've written, written extensively about your sisters as well, and your yep. sister Michelle is a writer herself, so mm. maybe she's getting her own back. But oh, totally. How do they feel about you taking so much of their, not just personal, but very personal lives into your work? I think all families have different lines, you know, and when I was writing about my family for, for Frankie magazine, it was through trial and error that I sort of came to understand what I felt comfortable sharing and what they felt comfortable with me writing uh, about. So, for instance, I think some families never talk about bodily functions. They would never do what my family do and have a discussion about poo over the dining table. But my family, I don't think, really talk about money, very frankly, necessarily. Or we might have discussions about politics, but they don't frame the whole conversation or it's not it's not something that we really touch on that often. I just think different people have different lives. So my family's actually quite comfortable with me talking about the time they talked about, you know, their toenail falling off or, you know, a particularly weird incident at the doctors. <laughs> we think that stuff's funny. I know that there must be quite a few, but is there one particularly appalling and hilarious story that stands out? Uh, I was in grade four and I remembered I was having a series of panic attacks because I realised I'd made a terrible error. My mum had always told me that I was, of her five children, a very special child because um, she'd had a miscarriage and then I was born exactly a year after that and that was a part of my mythology as to why I was the special child of, of the siblings. And so I went to a very Christian school in Queensland and we had this sort of special kids day where you had to write why you were special in the eyes of God or something and then that was hung up around the room and I told this story of how my mum had had a lost baby and I forgot the terminology so I wrote my mum had an abortion and then she had me a year later and that's why I'm special which didn't go down well in a Christian Probably school. Probably not what they had in mind. <laughs> no so it was sort of a, an appalling mix-up that only as an adult you realise is sort of darkly funny, but still pretty horrific. How long did it take you to realise? It took me... It took... it. I, I realised quite quickly, but I couldn't tell my mum what had happened at school for about maybe a year. And in that whole year, I just felt that 
deep, deep mortification at myself. Was she involved in the school? Like, did she come and do canteen shifts and all that kind of stuff? Oh, she was well known because she had five kids going to the school as well. You know, Jenny, Jenny over there has come back here and Jenny had an abortion. And, you know, it was just, it was just that awful thing where I needed to clarify with people what had actually happened, but but I sort of couldn't by that stage. How awful. It's a little bit too late, I think, a year later to... Oh, pretty much, pretty much. But my mum was, she thought it was quite funny when I finally told her, you know, through my snot-nosed crying later on. She's always been very good about stuff when you reveal to her horrific things about about things you've done. And it seems like she's getting her own back as well. You guys write a sex advice column together, which is something <laughs> that we're going to get to. But That's right. Let's have a listen to something else that you've brought into play. What should we go with? Well, you mentioned my sisters before. I've got three sisters of the five kids. That It's very much a female-oriented household. So I thought I'd play Anthony and the Johnsons' You Are My Sister.
Anthony and the Johnsons, chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today. His name is Ben Law. He's a writer, and we've just been having a discussion about how much of your writing you draw from your personal life <laughs> and your siblings and family's extremely personal lives, which has somehow developed into this column that you write with your mother where you dish out sex advice to strangers. Whose idea was that? It's sort of weird, isn't it? Like writing a sex advice column alongside your mother. It almost sounds a little bit sick. But uh, The Lifted Brow, which is a great literary magazine that I, I, I knew the founders very well, Ronnie Scott. He came from Brisbane originally as well. Um, now it's become a Melbourne-based literary magazine and it's had people like Neil Gaiman write, write inside its pages, David Foster Wallace posthumously as well. Um, and they've always, they've always asked me to write stuff for them, but unfortunately because I've had to write so much for other stuff, I, I, sometimes I couldn't find the time. And then... Ronnie came to me and he asked me whether I would want to write something with my mother. I think it was pretty much his idea, a sex advice column where we'd both give advice, sometimes conflicting. And because my mum has a reputation for anyone who's read The Family Law or read about her in my Frankie pieces as well as being quite sexually frank. I mean, when my first book came out, we actually went on Channel 7 Sunrise together and Koshi was asking her about childbirth advice. It was one of the strangest moments in my life. And so knowing that, I thought, actually, this could be quite fun. So people send in letters anonymously and... Jenny gives her take, and then I give my take, and it actually gives me a chance to have a good laugh on the phone with my mum on a on a regular occasion because we start saying stuff to each other like you can't think that that that's not advice that you can give that's scandalous, mother, scandalous. Um, so it's quite it's quite fun for everyone involved. What's the worst advice she's... Because we've sort of, you know, we've touched on the worst advice that she's given you. What's the worst advice she's given someone else? That is a really good question. I feel like I should go into the archives in my laptop or something. I don't think she's necessarily given them bad advice. I think she's <laughs> she's given them advice where sometimes I think, well, I'm not... I'm not sure if I would tell that to my friend, but she she really means it. Like, um, you know, what are, what are some of the things we've had lately? Like, there was one very one very practical question where someone had given their girlfriend a perfume and then the, their mother had asked, um, what is that perfume? I'd like to buy it. And then we've got a situation where both the mother and the girlfriend are both wearing the same perfume. And now when this person has sex with their girlfriend, they can't stop thinking about their mother. Now, what do you do in that situation? And what I find hilarious about mum's advice is she always takes the mother's stance. She's like, I don't care about your girlfriend. You've got to respect your mother. You've got to tell your girlfriend to stop wearing that perfume because you are thinking of incesty thoughts. And I'm like, but can't they both wear the perfume? So, so we have those things where she's always coming from it, like mother's priorities first. I don't even care if your mother's a monster. Mothers always respect your mother, which I find quite hilarious. Do you respect your mother? Oh, to an extent. <laughs> Within the realm of reason, I think. No, I've got a lot of love and respect for my mother, of course. I'm going to Queensland this weekend and we're going to be shopping for exercise gear together. Nice. Yeah. Not perfume, though. No. <laughs> what should we play next? Uh, you know, maybe we can play an old uh, Australian song. Um, we can come back and talk about Queensland, maybe. I'm going to play Custard's Girls Like That. And I'm playing Custard because Custard were the very first live band I ever saw. So let's let's hear a bit of Dave McCormack. <laughs> Talk. 
with Girls Like That. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Heidi Pat, and this week we've got Benjamin Law in the studio and there's a pretty sweet story that goes with that song, Ben. Uh, sort of sweet but slightly harrowing as well. I mean, Custard was the first band I ever saw live. I was in year nine. Um, this was, what, like the mid-90s and everyone was really gearing to go up to music festivals and me and my friends decided we'd go to Homebake and Custard were one of the biggest bands on the bill as well, and I really loved them, still like them. And uh, we went uh, together, and we we lost each other very quickly, as you know, as what happens in music festivals. And we soon realised that one of the reasons we were missing our friend Mark was that he had been whisked off to hospital already because he had crowd surfed in another part of Homebake and then he'd broken his neck. I mean, just as backstory, all of our parents had huge reservations about us little grunts going to a music festival without any adult supervision. And when I think of, like, when I see year nine kids now, I'm like, I would never let them go to a music festival. What were you thinking? And and what what's quite horrible is that the parents were right. We, we did end up we did end up getting hurt, and Mark was on the front page of the Korea Mail, the state newspaper, the next day, in a neck cast. He was like a few millimeter, few millimeters away from being paralysed, where the fracture was in his neck. So, what started out as quite a fun, adventurous, and exciting day ended up in in medical horror. Um, but you know, it's a fond memory. I've seen Mark recently. We had a laugh about the time he was nearly paralysed. Yeah, in in a, in a parallel universe, that that homebake experience ended up even worse, I think. Mm. Your parents just get to say, I told you so for the rest of eternity now, really. Basically, yeah. And I think parents do have the right to say that as you get older, you realise that. (laughs) See, the thing is, though, that then you learn things about your parents and you get to use it against them. Oh, yeah. It's always a struggle. It's ongoing warfare. (laughs) And I'm sure that you've got plenty of examples. I know that, like... My dad is the sort of guy who researches for three weeks before he buys a toothbrush, and he is <laughs> Mr. Prepared. He right? sounds like my kind of guy. Mm, That's yeah, great. Yeah. But we found out about this time that he showed up to a music festival with nothing more than a watermelon and an umbrella. Wait, you mean he was naked and just had a watermelon and umbrella? No, I think he was wearing clothes. I mean, I haven't, I haven't fact-checked that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because when you said he came with nothing but, I was just like, where's the watermelon? Where's the umbrella? I don't know. Three days, watermelon and umbrella. We found out about that, and he was never allowed to ask us if we had a rain jacket ever again. Wow, that is like a military operation, isn't it? We're going to leave you in the middle of the country with nothing but a watermelon and an umbrella. What are you going to do? <laughs> I don't know. It seems like you figured it out. And so that's our our comeback. You know, we figured it out. But I'm curious about, you know, that was one of the first concerts that you ever Mm. went to. And you brought in some songs that were, you know, the first CD that you ever bought and all that kind of stuff. What was it like growing up kind of up on the Sunshine Coast and in the suburbs as a 
young gay Asian kid. I mean, when we talk about my first book, The Family Law, which is about growing up amongst my incredibly frank family, a lot of it is about growing up in a place that doesn't feel quite right for you anyway. So we were a Chinese-Australian family. My parents had come out from Hong Kong together. They married and then they had five children on the Sunshine Coast, which is an hour and a half north of Brisbane. And this is a beautiful place that's full of beaches and golden sand and tanned skin, which meant that it was not the place for us because my my mum hated the sand. All of us were incredibly weak swimmers as well. So we never really quite... I mean, I, I felt that I never really quite fit in. But at the same time, like, I had a lot of friends and stuff. But at the school where we, where we went to, like, for most of the year levels I was enrolled in, I was I was pretty much the only Asian kid throughout throughout a few years in primary school and then when it came to high school a year level of about you know 120 kids one of four Asian kids so you really kind of stuck out but I was never teased thank god or anything like that what I did find quite interesting was in the mid 90s um, that was also the rise of Pauline Hanson as well now Pauline Hanson of course came from Queensland and she her stronghold was in Ipswich I always see Pauline Hanson's rise as sort of like Tolkien's The Two Towers so there's like Sauron in one tower that's Ipswich and then there's the other tower I think it's Isengard and that was the Sunshine Coast so One Nation had a huge stronghold on the Sunshine coast and so there was like me this weedy Asian kid and I'd just watch every morning as the One Nation vans would roll in onto the Oval because a lot of the parents were huge supporters. Very odd. Very odd. So you're saying you grew up in Mordor. Yeah, basically. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> in a way and I was just the friendly little hobbit just trying to get along. <laughs> the Chinese hobbit. It's a new narrative for describing <laughs> growing up I guess. <laughs> you brought in a song by the go-betweens. Can you tell us about this one? Yeah, I, I mean you know I was, I was born in Queensland and raised in Queensland and then I moved to Brisbane when I was 17 and you know for the past 13 years I've been in Brisbane so I still very much feel like a Brisbane kind of guy I think Brisbane's really great in a lot of ways and I think one of the ways in which it's really great is it's had such a robust and incredible music scene for so long um I've brought in the go-betweens finding you because to I mean, halfway through living through Brisbane, I became very good friends with someone called Adele Pigfence, who was the last bass player for the Go-Betweens, and I always was meant to see them play live, and my boyfriend and my sister got to, um, but I didn't get to because then Grant McLennan died at quite a young age. How and so, rude. I know, how rude and how sad. Um, but then a few years later, they started a fellowship up in his name. Um, my boyfriend, who's a songwriter, won the fellowship. So we've got this sort of connection with the go-betweens that feels quite personal, actually. And I think this is one of the most beautiful songs that uh, Grant wrote about about missing someone who's gone, which feels quite appropriate.
the go-betweens with Finding You. You're listening to FBI Radio. This is Out of the Box. I've got Ben Law in the studio with me this afternoon. He's programming all the tunes and we're having a chat about his life or maybe hopefully some aspects of it that haven't already been published for the rest of the world to read. You're very brave. But one of your recent works is a book called Geisha, mm. which has been described as gonzo nice journalism. <laughs> yeah, that's Robert Desain and in a review in the monthly, I think. Yeah. How does that sit with you? Because to me, it seems quite apt. Like you're a nice guy and you write about really quite appalling and hilarious topics in this way that does feel quite nice and a bit chaste. Yeah, I feel I feel like in some ways I was having a discussion with this with my with my book editor the other day and we were talking about other writers who are um, who come out of this publishing house that I'm on, Black Ink, and how some of them are real sort of mongrels in a great way. They'll dig into a story, they'll tear people up and um and and I've never had that in me, I don't think. I've never really been a confrontational person or I've never really felt comfortable tearing someone on the spot. I prefer to win their trust and and try to figure out who they are as people. So what happened is after the family law after I wrote the family law, which was a memoir, it's sort of a vaguely disgusting exercise writing a memoir because you're writing about yourself, other people as well, but it's very navel gazing and you're stuck in a room by yourself with your memories trying to figure out what happened and you know, you sort of feel gross after writing about yourself for, for about a year and a half is how long it took to write that book. But the other mode in which I write is journalism. So I really wanted to write a book about other people. And uh, I was really interested in a lot of news stories that were uh, queer news stories that happened to be set in Asia. So the first story that I wrote for the book that I researched was going to Thailand and looking at something called Miss Tiffany's Universe, which is the biggest transsexual beauty pageant in the world. And it's hugely mainstream. So they've got a third of the American viewing audience of the Oscars watching um, Miss Tiffany's Universe every year. So this is like a big family event as well. And so I think one of the reasons that drew me to this subject matter was challenging our own perceptions of what we think about other countries and their minority population. So when you think of Thailand, what do you think of? You probably think of great food, you probably think of great beaches, and then what's the other stereotype? Ladyboys. So I wanted to interrogate that, and so I went backstage with the Miss Tiffany's beauty pageant for about a month, and I talked to a lot of these, to a lot of these women and heard some pretty incredible but often distressing stories as well. Hmm. And the question that you asked and the one that I'm curious about as well is because it is, it's the punchline to every joke about Australian tourists going to Thailand, like, oh, and then I took this girl home and it turns out she had a dick. And, <laughs> yeah. Like, firstly, that's not really that funny. And secondly, why is there this perception that every second girl in Thailand is possibly a boy? Like, is it that being transgendered or transsexual is more acceptable there? It's more in the open? I had exactly the same question. I mean, I, I didn't look into figures to find out how many transsexual women there were per capita as a ratio of the general population or anything like that. But when you when you step into Thailand, especially in densely urban areas like Bangkok, it's it's quite apparent that the a lot of the women that serve you at bars, at restaurants, at Seven Eleven, who you work in beauty salons, are transsexual, transgender women. And as outsiders, I think that's quite eye-opening because we don't see enough visibly trans people in our day-to-day life or people that we necessarily know are trans. And so I, I had that question as an outsider to a lot of the women and the surgeons that I spoke to, and they came up with similar answers. They would think they thought that because Thailand is largely a Buddhist nation, that they don't really have that sort of um, you know monotheistic homophobic doctrine that a lot of other countries do. If they you know majority Muslim, Jewish, Christian background, um, those morality uh, judgments tied to transsexuality or towards queer sexuality isn't as pronounced. It's definitely there. I mean, every transsexual woman that I spoke to in Thailand who told me the story of their family and when they came out as as being a woman, their families were deeply upset. But they're quite extraordinary stories in terms of raising money, in terms of asserting their, their sex as well, their brain sex. Um, but they also are hugely discriminated against. So I went there thinking Thailand's must be the promised land for transsexual women. 
And then, of course, there are so many things like they're so legally overlooked that they might be recruited into the military accidentally and forced to strip in front of other men, you know. So, or, or they're thrown into prison with men, which is entirely inappropriate. What were some of the other things that you learnt doing research for that book? Because you travelled all over Asia. Yeah, I travelled to seven countries and probably twice as many cities within those countries. And what I tried to do, I mean, I thought this book was going to be some sort of encyclopedic look into what it's like to be queer in Asia until I realised, well, you can't really write that book because there's no such thing as the universal experience of gay Asia. So what I wanted to look at was, was topics that happened to be pronounced in certain countries. So I know I wanted to look at transsexuality. Where is the first place that springs to mind? Probably Thailand. But I could have written that in India or China. But then I started looking at other issues. I think the most uh, distressing or upsetting chapter that I did was looking at the spread of HIV, AIDS throughout Myanmar, also known as Burma. And that was a really appalling situation because the government there spends the least per capita on on public health than than pretty much any country in the world. So you've got a combination of very poor services, very poor people, a lack of education, and a virus that spreads quite easily between people as well. So there was that. I mean, some of the book some of the book is actually quite funny, like I spend time in nudist gay resorts in Bali, but then you get to quite serious places and subject matter like Burma. And then I finished up in in India looking at what's happening over there. I mean, we We've got an ongoing sort of fight for same-sex marriage, but over in India, it's a it's a very fundamental sort of political battle about decriminalising homosexual acts. They've swayed one way, they've had a victory, and they've just been crushed in a in a higher court recently as well. If you would like to find out more information about Ben's book, Gage, you can head to the FBI radio website. We've thrown up links to heaps of Ben's work, some articles and links to his book and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, we're throwing up the playlist. All the songs throwing up. Come on. Just vomiting it out. I, know, I, know. I just saw the look on your face. I was like, it's Benjamin Law. Of course he's going to make a vomit joke. <laughs> you preempted it. We're putting the playlist online is a more sanitary way of saying that, fbiradio.com. But what should we put up next? Um, I'm going to play a song by Washington, also known as Megan Washington, Sentimental Education. This ties into Geisha in a strange way because I wrote this book over maybe about two years flying in and out of Asia. And when I touched down in India, I I, I never feel homesick, but I think it was, uh, you know, Delhi can be a really full-on city. And so I would just strap myself into headphones and I'd listen to a few songs that Megan had been working on that she sent to me. And one of the songs she sent to me eventually became this song, which is sort of an ode to homesickness, which felt quite apt.
That's Washington. This is Out of the Box. My name's Heidi, and this week we've got Benjamin Law on the show, who's a writer who seems to write about pretty much everything. Mm. What are the things that you don't write about? You know, you were asking me in the break what I don't write about, and my glib answer was, hey, I'll write about anything. But I think my, you know, the real answer is, if it bores me, I won't, I won't write about it. So... I mean, I've been over the past year. I've been writing a lot for Good Weekend that comes out with the Sydney Morning Herald, for instance. And I think when sometimes I'll pitch stories to my editor, sometimes he'll throw stories my way. And if my first reaction is, "Well, I don't particularly want to read that," I, I, I don't, I won't pursue it. But I think the main things I like writing about are sex and sexuality, things that are a bit taboo things that i would like to know i mean i'm a huge busybody so if there's something there that i want to know a bit more about um that's what i tend to write about do you ever get worried about being pigeonholed as a writer because a lot of Mm. your work does explore sex and sexuality and specifically homosexuality and another large body of your work explores your family and identity politics and about being chinese australian do you ever get tired of feeling like you have a responsibility or, you know, being assigned stories like this? Like, oh, you're gay, write the gay story. Or like, you're Asian, write it's, this story about other people from that continent. Yeah, I mean, it, it is one of the things that sometimes weighs on my mind. And some editors might approach me as the gay writer. I've, I've got one editor, actually, of a magazine who says, now, I, I want to make sure that I'm not just putting you onto gay stories. Or even if I'll pitch stories about sexuality to him, he'll say, oh, yeah, I'd like you to do something else, actually, which I think is an interesting sort of thing that sometimes editors can be reticent about you pigeonholing yourself sometimes. But let's face it, I've written a book. The first book is a memoir about growing up gay and Asian. The second book is about other people who are gay and Asian. Let's guess what Ben is. He might be gay and Asian. And I think one of those things is I can't ever disentangle myself from either of those things, just as other people can't disentangle themselves, the fact that they're a white heterosexual male who knows a lot about cricket, you know, and they, I don't actually mind being pigeonholed in a way, as long as you pigeonhole me in quite a few ways. So for instance, you know, I've been, I've been asked to write stories or I've written stories because I'm the Queensland guy, or I've written stories because I'm the Gen Y guy, or I'm the Asian guy, or I'm the gay guy. And I don't actually mind it because I actually am all of those things. Whereas I know other writers have huge reservations and issues about being placed specifically on the LGBT bookshelf, which probably occupies 20 centimetres in any given bookshop at any given time, uh, and you won't find their book anywhere else. Whereas I feel sort of lucky because the books that I've written are strange books that can sit in different places. Like I've seen... The Family Law in Australiana, which is which is sort of great because it is a very Australian book in some ways. But I've also seen it published in general nonfiction and and memoir. And then Geisha is a travel book in some ways, and in some ways it isn't. You know, just because I go to Burma, I'm not exactly saying, "Hey, you should go to Burma," where a lot of people are very ill. So I I I sort of feel like I'm. You know, people can pigeonhole me exactly how they like. I mean, my boyfriend and I have this conversation sometimes. Aren't you afraid of being the gay Asian guy? And why? Well, you know, baby, that's what I am. <laughs> you have written quite extensively about it. I know you wrote a thesis on the topic of <laughs> identity politics. And one thing that you mentioned that I thought was really, really interesting was this idea that this idea of authenticity in mm. writing and the fact that people are afraid to touch subjects that they don't feel that they can write about with authenticity, which means mm. that sometimes those subjects just don't get written about. First of all, can I just say thank you for reading my thesis because God knows I have not read it in a very long time. I barely even remembered it existed, so that is very diligent of you. Um, But, yeah, I I did write about it for my thesis because I was kind of obsessed with it for a while, and I've always thought that this idea of authenticity was really, really problematic. Um, Like, for instance... I'll have friends when they see a camp gay guy on television saying that's so stereotypical. And it's like, well, I actually know a lot of guys who are camp. And just because he doesn't represent you, I don't think that doesn't make him inaccurate or inauthentic. I think the problem is if there's no other representation of a certain type of people except one thing the camp guy, the Asian in the background as an extra or an absence of it. And I think because people do feel this fear, as you talk about, of um, not getting it right 
as if there's such a thing that you can get a character right, say on television, like I'm writing some telly at the moment, um, that that will lead to situations where you just never have any diversity on screen or, or any sort of um, diversity in casting, for instance. I think that can be a really problematic thing where people are like, oh, well, I'm... I'm this kind of person. Surely I can't write about that sort of person, but that that just is an act of research and imagination, I thought. Mm. Which seems to be kind of directly contrasted by what you have actually written about, which does come from your personal yeah. life. Yeah. But... Well, well, then I write, then I write nonfiction. I mean, all of my journalism is about people who I who I don't really understand. So I, as I said before, I'm a shameless busybody. So I haven't tried meth, for instance. I don't know if I can talk about this on radio, but... Um, you can talk about it in the context of meth is bad. Meth is bad. I've not tried meth, but I've always been fascinated about about methamphetamines. So I wrote a story where I interviewed a lot of people and I tried to understand what drew them to it and what it does to the human body and and the effects it might have. So I think, you know, even though for Gaja I wrote about people who were gay and Asian, they were also people that were completely different to me. And a, a part of that book's question was, what could my life have been like if I wasn't if I wasn't raised in Australia? So there is a busybody aspect to, to what I do and trying to seek out people who aren't quite me. Benjamin Law, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. That was fun. It's been a real pleasure. And I know you've been doing some stuff with the Digital Writers Festival, which yes, is happening at the moment. That's right. Is there any more events coming up? There are. So the Digital Writers Festival, if you you know run it through a search engine, it will be the first hit. And it's basically a writers festival that anyone can access as long as you've got a decent internet connection. There are panels on the writer. There are panels all throughout um, the coming week. And all you have to do is is hop onto the website and you'll see a video cast played live for you with people talking amongst themselves about topics between different cities. It's kind of magical. It is kind of magical. We'll throw up a link on that again. We're going to put a link. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put a link on the program page. It's fbiradio.com and there's a list of all the songs that Benjamin played and links to a whole bunch of stuff that he has written, including... Your thesis and, and like, let, <laughs> yeah, let's you're just going to put my thesis we're just online. Gonna, we're just going to do that. It's already there. That's right. And my very, very diligent team of producers managed to find that one. So a big thanks to Zasha Rosen, Jacqueline Breen, Josie Wright, Pauline Mule for doing a lot of work this week in finding out pretty much every single thing that Ben has ever put on the internet, which <laughs> is a lot. Now we've got time for one last song. What's it going to be? The last song I'm going to play is actually someone's, uh, someone who I know quite well in that I date him. Uh, his name's Scott Spark. He's a singer-songwriter. He won the Grant McLennan Fellowship a few years ago, like I said, so his record is coming out later this year. I feel like I should play it because he has not dumped my ass, even though I've abandoned, abandoned him repeatedly to write books, to do research in far-flung places. Um, this is a song he's written called Tag Along, and even though he maintains it's not about me, I insist that it is. I was doing fine, I was doing fine Before you came along, I managed to ride You kissed me in the park at night Then I forgot my life I was doing fine, I was doing fine Before you came along, I managed to ride You came on like dynamite Then I truly knew what happiness was like For the first time We need to Take my call Wherever I'm going Won't you tag along I can find a way without you But I'm not sure To write a song and tell myself when I'm with the fuzz. Thank Christ you knew well enough to call my blood. Let me stray. Wherever I'm going, won't you tell? 
out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Heidi Pat on FBI 94.5.